Hello, this is Pastor Charles Roberts of the Reedy River Presbyterian Church. We're a congregation of the Bible Presbyterian Church General Synod. I'm recording this message a few weeks after Reformation Sunday 2023, and it is a more institutionalized version, I'll put it that way, as opposed to a live version of a presentation that I gave to our congregation a couple of Sunday nights ago. And it's based on an article that was written by Dr. R.J. Rushdoony way back in June of 1988. Now, the title of the article has a very uh, curious tone to it, and Upon seeing the title, you might think it has nothing to do with the subject of the Protestant Reformation, but it certainly does. He titled his essay, A Paradise of Women. So back in 1985, there were a series of published essays regarding the great reformer John Calvin, and one of those essays described how that the city of Geneva in Switzerland, in the days of John Calvin, came to be known as the Paradise of Women. Now, the context we have to have before we go any further is that many major cities in Europe in those days, coming out of the medieval times, were big, bustling places. They were full of people who uh, were probably not all that faithful and religious as Roman Catholics, and so there were a lot of things that were done in those societies that were far, far from the field of biblical morality. One of those things had to do with how women were treated. Now, let me just say before I go any further, I realize that this is a loaded topic, especially in uh, conservative biblical Christian circles. And people can jump to conclusions about, oh, well, he's in that camp. Oh, they're in that camp. No, we're in the camp of what Scripture teaches. This is our goal. This is, and, and I know, I know, I know. Everybody says they're doing that, but we can discern based on sound biblical frankly, reformational principles of biblical interpretation, what the Bible says about any and everything about which it speaks. And as Dr. Van Til reminds us, it speaks about everything. All right. So the city of Geneva, prior to the advent of the Reformation, was like many big European cities, a wide open place with uh, lots of immoral activity. Eh, We're pious people, I'm sure. But it came to be known in the time of Calvin, when he was the pastor of one of the several reformed churches in Geneva, the paradise of women, women, and it was meant to be a, a pejorative attack on Calvin because he was strongly protective of women's rights. Now, that needs to be put, again, in a context in which it was originally spoken or referring to, because we hear that term today in the early 21st century, late 20th century time frame, and it means something very, very different than what it would have meant in the age of Calvin in the 1500s. Well, under his guidance, for example, the sessions or consistories of the churches aggressively went after and prosecuted men who abused their wives. Uh, They also prosecuted uh, the, the guardians who had misappropriated the funds of widows and orphans. In many cases, and in good Christian tradition, a guardian would be appointed to take care of a widow or an orphan child or children, but there were many who saw this as a means of enriching themselves. And so, under the Reformed Church's understanding of the Bible, those people were prosecuted, and rightfully so. Uh, Wives who were deserted by their husbands were also protected. And many people today, they're not aware, 
that in that pre-Reformation era and for centuries before, and this is an example of how things were completely out of kilter in terms of biblical morality, uh, powerful and very prosperous elderly men and women, they would contract marriages with very young women and very young men. And the families of the young would comply with those marriage contracts because it would, it would be to their personal advantage to do so financially. Well, John Calvin strongly opposed those kinds of, frankly, phony marriages and that they should not be allowed. <clears throat> the records that have survived from that time period, specifically here, January of the year 1557, the consistory of the Reformed Church there recorded that uh, the church had dissolved a marriage between a man, excuse me, between a woman of more than 70 years of age with a man who was 27, 28 years old. And so they published rules that were to protect both men and women within the framework of marriage. For example, one of those rules is that any stranger coming into the city of Geneva from some distant country, they were not permitted to marry any citizen until a careful investigation was done of that stranger's past or background and family. If a woman was being savagely mistreated by her husband because she was faithful in her Christian faith, well, she could legitimately leave that husband before they, under the Roman Catholic rule, they could not. Now, this isn't to imply, Dr. Restuni points out in the article, that that means the church, the Reformed Church and the pastors who were seeking to be biblical as opposed to the medieval excesses of the Roman Catholic Church, it doesn't mean they were perfect in their judgments. But what is clear is that Geneva, under the leadership of John Calvin and the other Reformed pastors, was in its day rightfully called, no matter what the intent was, a paradise of women, specifically because Calvin and the church leaders were aware of unbiblical and unjust ways women were being treated in pre-Reformation society. What was the reason for that remarkable turn of events? I mean, how did things go completely opposite in terms of improving the lot of women in that society, this massive cultural change that was taking place? Dr. Rusduni points out in the article it was because of Calvin's emphasis that the Older Testament is as much a part of the Bible as the New, that it is inseparable from the New Testament, and that the New Testament was to be read as an essential part of the Older Testament and vice versa. So the whole Word of God consists of both Old and New Testaments. And the Old Testament, in this case, the point that he makes is that the Older Testament connects holiness with the law of God, and the law is concerned with everyday life. And so the result was that holiness was made a matter of everyday life for all believers. In a recent uh, podcast I, I did with my co-host Andrea Schwartz, uh, I pointed out, and I pointed out to our folks that uh, at our church, that, you know, in the medieval paradigm, if a man or a woman was trending toward holiness of life and devotion to spiritual things, well, they would more or less be shunted off into a nunnery or a monastery because ordinary people in day-to-day life, they weren't interested in things like that. You know, they were interested in farming and being cobblers and uh, blacksmiths and raising children and getting drunk and, you know, body games and all the sort of things that tended to occupy plebeian life in medieval society. But no, no, if you get a little bit too pious, well, off you go to the monastery or the nunnery. The Reformation era 
gave back to God's people the position of desiring holiness as a part of day-to-day living, and that necessarily connected it to how God's law says we are to live. And so the result was that holiness was made a matter of everyday life for all believers. Previously, as I said, under the erroneous teachings, it was something for a specifically small group of people. And because of the influence of Reformed biblical teaching, holiness of life, conformity to God's way of living became the pursuit of all Christians, or at least it was held up as something to be pursued. And it was an insistence on saintly life as the duty of every believer. Listen to this passage from Luke chapter 3, verse 35. I'm reading it from the New Jerusalem Bible translation. Love your enemies and do good to them, and lend without any hope of return. You will have a great reward, and you will be children of the Most High, for he himself is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. And were Jesus' words in Luke chapter 6. Of those words, John Calvin wrote this, and I quote him. It is our duty to do good, expecting nothing. We are to exercise a royal goodness, not a mercenary one. Having received grace, we should then manifest grace. That is from his Harmony of the, of the Gospels, Harmony of the Evangelists, um, Book 1, page 302 and following. So that is one example of an aspect of the Reformation that has been largely unknown. I have to say that Reformed churches to some extent share the blame for something like this because every Reformation Sunday weekend in October, you know, churches that are concerned about promoting and remembering the Reformation, and rightfully so, but they limit everything that is talked about for the most part to a number of doctrinal issues about how bad the Roman Catholic Church had become and how great it was that the Reformers recovered the five solas or promoted the five solas of the Reformation. Grace alone, faith alone, scripture alone, that sort of thing. And that's all well and good. We should remember those things. But that's not all. That is not all the Reformation gave us. And this is one example. Now, in our time, uh, one reason for this uh, unknown aspect of the Reformation is, in terms of civil law and church law, is that it made Geneva such a remarkable place is because also, not only is this, there's a reference to what I'll call broadly reformed pietism, but on the other side, people today associate what I've described as patriarchalism. And patriarchy, that is the husband or the father being the head of the household or the, the ruler, small r, in the family, is hated by feminists and the promoters of transgender madness, of course. And it's become a symbol, patriarchy has become a symbol of past and and also present evils. Well, what the enemies of God don't want anyone to know is that patriarchalism in the da- in the time in which we're talking about here in the reformation era was not male centered. Now whatever it may be conceived of today and whatever distortions eventually came into it in Calvin's Geneva, it was faith and family governed. Now in the 20th and 21st centuries, the fact is there's some men in traditional families who often have more power or aspire to have it than did men in what were really distinctively patriarchal cultures. So people have a confused idea. They're reading back into something 500 years ago that was not the case, whatever it may be today. And the reason why uh, these men, you know, had, quote, less power than men who see themselves as patriarchal today is because that the genuinely patriarchal man was a trustee from the past to the future. That was his main mission. 
If you'll listen to this passage from 1 Kings chapter 21, in 1 Kings 21 verses 1, 2, and 3, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Now, David, now Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab the king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it is near my house, and I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. And notice the response. Naboth said to Ahab, Jehovah forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. So, Dr. Rushdooney points out concerning this verse that we see here that Naboth did not feel that he had the right to sell the family land, no matter how much King Ahab offered him for it. Because from this truly patriarchal standpoint, the land was not his, except as a trust from his forefathers and then to pass it on to future future generations. I remember many years ago, <clears throat> before I went to seminary, I was working a job in a big city in North Carolina, and that city um, had an industry that employed, over the many, many decades of its existence, hundreds and hundreds of people in and around that town. I'm not going to go into the details. It doesn't really matter. And there were many people who, for generations, worked for this big company, you know, children, fathers, mothers, grandparents, and up and down the generational line. And many of these people bought stock in that company. And it was, you know, considered a generational family thing. Well, I happened to be living in that place when that company was bought out in one of these uh, stock market Wall Street leveraged buyouts. And all of a sudden, uh, people who worked in, in factory lines and factory floors sweeping up trash became almost millionaires overnight because of the stock value, and they didn't have any choice. that They were forced to take the payout or, or something to that effect. So I was struck by the fact, I didn't understand it at the time, but there were people who really became enriched overnight who were basically lower middle class people, and they were very sad. But the reason was, is this very point. Something had been lost, and, that, and all the money, all the stock options couldn't replace it. And what had been lost was this generational uh, patriarchal understanding of the value of the family and what it passes on to the future generations. In our postmodern nihilistic culture, most people are only focused on the present moment. You can at least trace this back to the uh, counterculture era of the 1960s and 70s, where everything is me-focused, immediate gratification, and so the rootless people of our time believe they have no responsibility either to the past or to the future or frankly, to anything other than immediate desires. And as odd as it may sound, this type of thinking is why, given any opportunity, modern people do not hesitate to promote and embrace tyranny and coercion. Now, they do that uh, so they can safely do something without suffering immediate judgment. They do what they can safely to do without suffering immediate judgment. And in the thinking of modern people, power and, quote, right, unquote, are limited to this present moment. But the biblically-based patriarchal thinking of Calvin was very, very different, because in that view, men are linked to responsibilities to the family and to other people. Uh, the wife of the family was the husband's partner in the responsibilities, and both were to be future-oriented. But you see, feminism and what, I, what Rustuni calls masculinism, they are both present-oriented. It has no sense of community, uh, nor the harmony of interests. 
both feminists and masculinists promote a war between the sexes, and they are evolutionists, they're Darwinian, and so they believe in the survival of the fittest, in, the, in a cosmic war of survival. And the fact that so many have eschewed having children and families, either through birth control or not having any understanding of the biblically-based place of sex in family marriage about you know, creating the next generation to succeed them. Instead, they buy dogs and push them around in uh, baby carts, and this is their dead-end nihilistic death-wish culture. And since the universe, from that standpoint, has no law or morality in their faith, the fittest are simply the survivors. And those uh, whose ruthlessness and contempt for morality enables them to survive. And to all such people, they see patriarchy, the the biblically-based family, as a trap because it presupposes that despite the fall of man's depravity, the ultimacy and the triumph of God and his law, and they don't like that, a reformed biblical patriarchal culture sees the essential conflict in life as a moral conflict, not a personal one. Biblical patriarchal culture is now very much despised, as we've been saying, by those who, as humanists, they hate moral solutions. Because for them, our problems are not to be diagnosed as a rebellion against Christ and God's law. No, instead, they see it as a matter of economic conflict and sociological conditioning. Now, Dr. Rastuni, in um, closing out his article, he makes a very interesting point, and I'm, I'm going to quote him directly here. And I'm quoting, he says, I have on occasion cited in speaking, in speaking engagements he means, the work of the Bishop Charles Borromeo, who lived from 1538 to 1584, the Bishop of Milan in Italy, whose charities included giving marriage dowries to penniless girls whose fate would otherwise have been the streets, and in addition to the hostel, H-O-S-T-E-L, for street people of his day, orphanages, a home for rehabilitated prostitutes, and a home for unhappily married women. The reaction is sometimes a cold one. Social problems, many people hold, should be dealt with by the state, not by, quote, amateurs. And Dr. Rastuni went on to say, when we depersonalize the problems of men and women, we also depersonalize ourselves. We reduce people to mathematical ciphers whose answers lie in presidential directives and congressional rules by politicians, end quote. So we are taught today in so many words that we must deny Christianity and Christ in favor of the state and its social plans and social workers. Calvin in Geneva gave us a biblical solution, a different answer than what we have today. But for many people today, Geneva, they would dismiss it immediately because they've been taught to do so, that Calvin's Geneva could not have been a paradise of women. I mean, after all, Geneva had no equity rules or racial justice laws. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 3.17, now the Spirit, excuse me, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. So it is the Spirit who gave us the law and the Gospels. And if we do not seek our answers in the Lord and his word, we become part of the problem and not part of the solution. And that pretty much sums up what Dr. Rastuni wrote in this article from June of 1988, The Paradise of Women, one of the unknown blessings or largely ignored blessings 
of the Protestant Reformation and the recovery of biblical religion. Again, this is Pastor Charles Roberts of Reedy River Presbyterian Church in Conesty, South Carolina, thanking you for listening today. Take care, and God bless.